Hello and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the Metropolitan Government of Nashville and Davidson County. On this episode of the Nashville Sounding Board, I sat down with Dr. Sekou Franklin and Dita Murphy, two leaders of the push for a police community oversight board here in Nashville. I spoke with them earlier this summer to discuss their campaign for an oversight board, but I wanted to follow up with them because, of course, a lot has happened since we last spoke, including the tragic death of Daniel Hambrick in an officer-involved shooting. And I wanted to give them a chance to respond to statements coming out of the mayor's office, as well as some issues raised in my last podcast, a discussion with Governing Magazine reporter and writer John Bunton. So I think this was a great discussion. I hope you enjoy it. Look forward to hearing your feedback. Thanks for listening. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast for round two here right before the election. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So to start out, a lot has happened since the last time that we spoke. Uh, Daniel Hambrick was shot and killed by Officer Delkey. Uh, Recently, District Attorney Glenn Funk has uh, brought charges of criminal homicide against Officer Delkey. Also, your charter amendment is now on the ballot as Amendment 1 overcame some legal challenges from the Fraternal Order of Police. To get started, what was the reaction? What has the reaction been to Amendment 1 following the death of, of Daniel Hambert. Uh, during, that happened during our last week of petition gathering. So um, it seemed at that point that everything that we had been talking about became real to people. And it was like, oh, this is, this is a real live issue here in Nashville. So at that point, we had a mad rush for signatures. We gathered, we ended up with 8,000 signatures. We gathered about half of them in the, during that last week because people, it became real. People realized that this is happening in Nashville and we do need to do something about it. Yeah, I think, um, of course, in the African-American community, the black community, there was outrage to the shooting. And I think that um, there was, it caused a greater sense of urgency in the black community for an oversight board but I think across town and places where there typically are very few cases of hyper policing, hyper policing, we we received um, a number of inquir- inquiries about the community oversight board and the need to address accountability from some unlikely places or some some people who, you know, typically have been on the sidelines or these issues are kind of distant from them. So I, I think it was interesting to see some of the responses from people from across town who don't live in communities where there's hyper-policing. Recently, we've seen statements coming out of the mayor's office. Mayor Bradley's office has said uh, that, quote, he has always supported community oversight of the police, but that, quote, he doesn't support the language on the ballot. Have you spoken to Mayor Bradley about these concerns? Has has he reached out? And, and what do you make of that kind of dance between supporting it in theory, but then when you put forward a real-life proposal, we have issues with it. Uh, that just sounds like political gamesmanship to me. I mean, it, it's it's a statement that really doesn't 
doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You support it, but then when you have a proposal for oversight on the table, you don't support it. It sounds like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. You can't have it both both ways. Yeah, I think that um, Riley's off office reached out in the spring, but it was unclear if that was came at the request of Briley, and it would have been unfair to meet that request in the middle of a mayoral election. He had ma- multiple mayoral candidates, and it would be it would have been unfair if Oversight Now were to be biased towards towards publicly biased towards one candidate versus the other. So since then, um, his his director of public safety, I, I, I'm not sure if that is the exact name of the office. Um, there's been some conversation with him, preliminary conversation, but there's been no personal invite in any way, shape, or form from uh, Mayor David Bradley to sit down. He's met with quite a few people, um, including a group of uh, primarily African-American activists, ministers, and leaders, um, right after the release of the video shooting um, of Delkey um, killing uh, Mr. Hambrick. Um and they pressed him on oversight board, but still, Briley is pretty resiliently against. And we were notably excluded from that meeting. Yeah. No, that was a notable yeah. exclusion. Yeah. And it, just to kind of for your viewers, that Briley has been familiar with the oversight board uh, proposal, not the charter amendment, but the similar proposal of the council, which is which is the council legislation, which is because he was similar. vice mayor at the time. Yeah, he was. Over he's been he's now. been familiar yeah. with it for yeah. for for the greater part of 20 months and he he seemed to express some enthusiasm or some receptivity to to the oversight board legislation so you know in an earlier time in terms of the concerns i know that there is a concern about kind of budgeting via charter amendment is something that his office has has said pointing to the cost of it and being concerned about the precedent what are kind of the other concerns that you guys are hearing among people who are ostensibly for oversight but are worried about your specific proposal? Well, people people are concerned about um, they're concerned about the the effect on on officers. A lot of people are concerned about um, whether it will deny them due process, whether it will be attacking them or be anti police. Or something that will that will be um, punitive toward them. There are some concerns about the the cost, even though it's it's the cost is relatively low. There still are some concerns raised about the cost, and then you know there's a large concern because the police department is not does not support it. There's no buy-in from the police department, so people remain concerned about how it, how it will work with no buy-in from the police department. There's no buy-in from the FOP, Fraternal Order of Police. Or the official. Or the official police department. Or the official police department leadership. The idea is budgeting by by referendum, so by chart referendum. So it's kind of a a false concern because here's the thing. If you don't have an an oversight board with money attached to it, you might as well not even have an oversight board. That's number one. Because it has to be independent. And and Mayor Briley, if he were to establish an oversight board by, through an executive order, he probably would not provide funding for it. And if a new mayor came in, a new mayor could obviously eliminate that board and eliminate any funding. Furthermore, 20 years from now, <laughs> the funding for the oversight board actually may be small. 
get continued considering the growth and the cost of living. And there's nothing that says that if, if the money that's budgeted to the oversight board on an annual basis is not spent, it can go back to the general operating budget or it could be go back to traditional public safety concerns or public safety issues. And that's what happens in other cities. If there's money that's budgeted for an oversight board, uh, money spent is money lost and money spent. It goes back to the to the general operating budget. So building on that question about buy-in from the police department, my last guest on the podcast, Governing Magazine reporter and writer John Bunton, wrote a piece back in January about sort of best practices for oversight efforts. And I know that, that you guys wanted to respond to some points that he made. But two things jumped out to me. One is the importance of buy-in from leadership within the police department, political leadership. And then the second is this sort of distinction between front-end accountability and back-end accountability. And of course, quickly noting that your proposal, Amendment 1, does include the front-end accountability, which would be sort of policy review, policy recommendations. So it does have front-end and back-end accountability. So first of all, is, is, is that a fair distinction to make? What's the interplay between front-end and back-end? Is, is one more important than the other? And then also, to what extent is buy-in from the police department leadership and, and uh, political leadership, to what extent is that necessary or possible in our environment? Well, I'll take the, the first issue. I, I, and I, I teach, um, I, at least I've taught um, the principal author, Barry Friedman, in the Policing Project in my course. And I think it's, I'm not sure it's good to dichotomize between front end versus back end. Um, if you're on the street, if you're a person who's being either profiled or you're bringing in complaints, the lines are more blurred between front end and back end. And to some extent, the front end versus back end, those are more academic arguments that may not necessarily play play well on the street. Um, my issue with the, the the distinction between front end and back end is that front end is going to require maximum cooperation from a police department, from the chief all the way down to the chain of command, down to the academy. Because they would be kind of ceding control of their police they would, policies. They would be ceding control with the, to a community group that supposedly can co-produce um, an entire new process of training and, and, um, and um, infrastructure that can perhaps improve police departments. And in the case of Nashville, that's that's never happened. And if you talk to anybody in the police department in Nashville, well, off the record, that's that that, that that's not going to happen. They're not going to see control from the chain of command, from the mayor, from the chief of the police, all the way down to the academy. There's no competent person who would agree with that, who would say that. Secondly, so and and I read a button article actually a long time ago. <laughs> I didn't realize it was the same person. Secondly, the, the challenge that p- police departments often face when dealing with so-called front-end issues is is on the community side. How do you maintain community input over a long period of time? And it's, you can do it for one or two or three months, but in that six month in that year, with no infrastructure and funding, and reputable, that is reputable organizers, reputable activists, that is activists who can legitimate legitimate those front-end, those front-end processes on the front-end, it's just, it's just gonna be entirely difficult. And if you go back to look at, there's a great article that I think your viewers should read. I think it's called The Bratton Strategy. It also appeared in Governing Magazine perhaps maybe a decade or so ago, and the police department officials were saying, you know, we had community meetings after six months, no one showed up. 
because the the the, the idea of maintaining front end front end intervention and accountability without an infrastructure is extraordinarily hard. So I just think that this distinction between front end versus back end is is not as realistic as it sounds good in Nashville. It's overly academic. I think it sounds good in elite liberal circles, particularly white liberal circles, uh, particularly among middle class folks who don't have to deal with the daily realities of policing. But I think on the street, it's 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 more complicated than that. I think buy-in from the police department is more complicated also. I mean, we have the official police position from the chief and those in leadership and from the FOP that um, are strongly against the oversight board. But then you have um, rank-and-file people that have talked to us that understand the need for oversight and are for oversight. So even within the police department, there's not uniform opposition. The FOP does not represent every officer in the in the police department. So it becomes, you know, a nuanced position because the um, the top leadership of the police department has been resisting any type of reform any or any type of change. And as time goes on and we get more information about the inner workings of the police department and scandal after scandal after scandal, it becomes obvious that there's a need for something to happen. But they are resistant to any type of change. So when people are, when they, people are dying, when the crime rate is going up, you can't just sit back and, and, and not do anything because the top leadership is against it it becomes necessarily adversarial, not because it is something that, that people are looking to pick a fight, but because something needs to be done. Can I give two, two examples, if I can, for your audience? Because I want to make sure I point this out about the front end versus back end, sure. as if this is, this is new. And, I, and again, I, I think I like, I, li- I like Friedman's approach. And I like Friedman's idea, but I think it's, this needs to be re- reworked in some cases. That in, in Nashville, and, and Theta knows this, there have been two front-end initiatives that were implemented or at least, at least, at least crossed paths into Anderson's tenure. There was the development of implicit bias training, at least at least the early start of it, uh, that that occurred years ago and during Anderson's early years as chief, um, and there, and that that training lay dormant. It was never it was never fundamentally developed or implemented. There was also a, a what does that mean? What it is is that 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 you have a program that's not quote unquote formally abolished or eliminated. It's just that whenever no one's looking, when people aren't looking and people aren't monitoring it it's not implemented um there was also a, a behavioral psych evaluation uh component to as a front end of process in fact we we have we have we have the consulting guide for it we have it um and um that did a a, three, a, a 360 degree psych evaluation or at least behavioral i'm sorry a, a behavioral evaluation let me just make sure i clarify that um of of senior commanders and the, the outcome, the results of that, the implementation, the process for improving senior command at the police department, were never were never implemented. So when 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 folks look the other way, when it's out of sight, out of mind, these programs just lay dormant without robust intervention and oversight. Do we currently have an active implicit bias training for officers? 
I don't know. I don't know. They either. said they were going to develop one at council, but when no one's looking, it's it's difference between actually establishing one and actually implementing in a robust fashion. And year after year. Year after year, where there's constant reporting on on what's what's happening. Is it just five hours? Is it just two hours? Are you just taking people to the civil rights room of the MLK library for two or three hours, in which half the people aren't listening, and just and uh, was. The, and then and then you and then you're rolling out your PR person Don Aaron to help publicize it. So so there so unless you have robust intervention that 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 ties what what they call front end with front end to back end and makes it you know linked together, you're just going to have business as usual. And 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 David Bradley knows that. The the, the council members know that. Right. We know what we know how they right. talk privately. MMPD officials know 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 that unless you get robust intervention oversight. It's just gonna just it's gonna win over moderate or middle 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 of the road voters who don't live in these communities. And it doesn't. It this whole process does not have to be adversarial. But when you have that type of resistance from the top, yeah, and um, these reforms need to be done, it becomes adversarial. Mayor David Bradley knows all the problems in the MNPD. <laughs> he knows everything that's going on in MNPD. It's just a matter of whether or not he wants to take them public and whether he wants to do the, do anything about them about them another word about front end versus back end accountability you mentioned other efforts in other cities where participation drops off big time after the first few months is part of that kind of a, a lack of trust potentially if you don't have the back end accountability and you don't see officers being held responsible um, for their actions would that kind of lead to a lack of trust, a lack of buy-in from the public wanting to involve themselves in the policy review, in the policy you know, planning process if there's not a back-end accountability. I think so, because I think the worst thing, it's worse having an ineffective oversight board than having none at all. To have it there and it not be doing what it's supposed to do just deepens it widens the gap so if we're going to do this we have to do it right i think you know too um it's infrastructure and that's that's and i asked <laughs> i would pose the question what's you know if the policing project wants to come into nashville and being around organizing like in nashville what's the infrastructure that's going to be used to actually implement it in the third fourth fifth or sixth month are you just relying upon you know ministers who work you know 60 hours a week how are you going to implement implement it? But I think with with our oversight board proposal, and I think the rules and regulations that that we hope to propose before election day is, um, it, it has a board, but it also has a staff, and we think the staff um, must have access to everything from language interpreters. The staff must have um, civil rights training that's ongoing. Staff and the board members. We also think it's important that the COB board, the community oversight board, um, have meetings in the community. And not just means at Howard School, in which, you know, one-fourth or one-third or more of their communities, of their meetings, actually in communities most affected. So it's, it's, it's not just infrastructure, but it's also the process in which there's a, there's, there's, there's a broader community engagement. And that's why we think that this board has a potential to be something very transformative for Nashville. And the things that you spoke to, they cost money. They cost money. What are the kind of best practices? What are the best examples um, of other cities that have spent the money, 
that have created a community oversight board that, as you're planning to do, addresses the front end and also the back end accountability. What are examples of peer of peer cities who have done this successfully? We've modeled a lot out after Oakland. Isn't Oakland the one who has the community, the members from the community? Yeah, Oakland had an oversight board, but they just revitalized oversight board. So we looked at Oakland's, we looked at um, Denver. The, the, we were bringing in a person from Denver. Um, I think I think I can mention this. We're bringing a person in yeah. from Denver. I think um, October twenty twenty fifth or so. So okay. um, we want to invite anyone in your audience to that particular meeting. And uh, we've looked at St. Petersburg. We just sent uh, one of our main uh, core members, uh, Melissa Cherry, just went to the uh, nationwide NACO, NACO conference, which is a national oversight civilian uh, coalition of 400 members to look at best case practices. And so we borrowed from each of these particular issues. And collectively, what we learned is that the best oversight boards must have funding that's constant, must have a, a budget. Number two is that they, mu- they must have subpoena power or the equivalent of subpoena power, which ours, which ours does. Um, number three is they must have some, some in, they must have independence. And this is, this is possibly a, um, a touchy issue in Nashville. Independence means that board members have to be able to make decisions without feeling pressure or intimidated by law enforcement officials. And likewise, if law enforcement officials are brought before the board to assist the board, they have to be able to testify without feeling intimidated by their own peer group. So our board says that our proposal, or Amendment 1, rather, says that you have to, you could be a law enforcement official who can serve on an on a oversight board, um, but you have to be with after five years of retirement or leaving MMPD. Simultaneous, also, I want to emphasize that law enforcement personnel can serve as consultants, trainers, and serve in other matters in relationship to the oversight board. So it's not necessarily... It's not an adversarial position with law enforcement. It's just designed to protect independence. And that request came from members of police uh, police departments, that is, in, that independence. So these, there are these best-case practices. And what you find in cities, after cities across the country is that some cities have subpoena power but don't have independence. Some cities have independence but don't have funding. Some cities have funding but don't have subpoena power. So Amendment 1 it tries to offer a best case scenario practice scenario drawn from various cities and the policy review. So amendment one would establish an oversight board that would not just look at policy review in police departments, but it would look at policy review across criminal justice agencies in that in Nashville. So that could be, for example, uh, looking at the police department's role in MNPS in Metro schools, looking at, um, what happens when police departments come across families that don't speak English? Are there language interpreters on site? So it has broad jurisdiction to conduct policy review across all criminal justice agencies. So because we have, we've looked at all the best practices and put them all in this, in our proposal, there are um, certainly the other oversight boards in Tennessee are watching us and, and using us as a model to um, Knoxville already has a board. Memphis's board is trying to be reinstated. So they are looking at us as um, a model to follow. And we are doing, as you can see, we're doing things a lot differently 
than other places because we're putting all of those things together. So that makes our board potentially very strong. The cases of Denver and Oakland, where you've pointed out successes there, was there police leadership open to it? Was there mayor publicly supportive of the proposal there? Um, I'm not sure about, uh, I'm not sure of Denver. Um, and I'm not, what I know about Oakland is that it came primarily in response to officer involved shootings. Yes, and, and, pro, and protests. But in terms of the city leadership, I'm not sure about whether or not city leadership supported it or, or, or opposed it. Yeah. As for Barry Friedman's policing project, I know going back to former Mayor Barry, that's been touted as an alternative. Where does that process stand uh, within Nashville? Is is Metro Nashville still working with the policing project? And why, other than funding, do you think that it would be an insufficient response? Well, let me just say this: that that Freeman doesn't think doesn't doesn't think that the COB is antagonistic or in opposition. Um, he's communicated, I think, through various channels that there should be an oversight board and and a policing project. That those two worked hand in glove together. In fact, at the NACO conference that he spoke at a week and a half ago or so, he said that. If you want to have front-end accountability, as he calls it, the best front-end accountability scenarios work better when you have oversight on the back end. So he would say that you need need uh, both at the same time. My issue with the policing project, which I think pertains to Nashville, and maybe this is a personal issue, but is that how did they get to Nashville? Who made the decision? Our oversight board proposal, we went through three council formal council meetings. I mean, we went through three subcommittee meetings in council, multiple meetings with elected officials. Our bar was 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 fifteen feet high. Written by people who <laughs> live here. Well, not yes. just written by people, but even yes. the the charter the charter referendum proposal was written by people who live here. But it was also we also leaned on a, a pretty good cadre of attorneys, you know, um, to help. I mean, so. Our bar, our bar has been so high. So whereas we've made sure it, it fits in with state law, we've got a yeah, state attorney general, state right. attorney, state yeah. attorney's opinion on it. Yeah. Um, but the policing project, which is championed as as Moses part in the Red Sea, it hasn't even gone through any of the same kind of vetting process. It hasn't con- gone, th- hasn't hasn't had to jump over the same hurdles as all just from the executive branch, right. And, because, uh, and, yeah. and when we, as a, when he had a meeting with a bunch of people from the community, in which I was <laughs> one of them, and we asked him, well, once you do your study and make your recommendations, how can you hold them accountable to um, implementing those? And, he's, and he admitted he can't. So what's the point of spending money and having all these recommendations when you cannot enforce and make sure that those recommendations yeah. now, one, are, are one quick are implemented. the policy piece in amendment one wouldn't it be a recommendation process and there's a year-end review process and you're lugging at policies but don't your recommendations then go to the police chief and it's up to the police department whether or not they they yes. implement so if it's an adversarial and i know that it's not intended to be no. but if the police chief is not on board with it and you submit policy. The difference if is, you it's a local group. Proposals that they don't like. Yeah, but you're but you're looking at enforceable. Is a, is a local group who is at least able to put the continue to put the pressure on. 
yeah. you know, continue but to, it's still to, not to enforceable, right? Continue yeah, but you get, to gather the yeah. data that says this is not working. He's, he's the police yeah. is still not implemented. Yeah. It's still not working. You know, you can keep that pressure going. Just apply political outside pressure. Outside group can't do that. Right. You know, sometimes we're not responsible for the results, but we're responsible for giving people a chance mm-hmm. to fight for, you know, better policies and dignity. And what you find with the policy review is the policy review gives community groups a chance to openly deliberate about policing issues that are that are historically secretive. But furthermore, you it gives— put the real stats behind it. If they are not going to implement the policies, with uh, you you can show that they are ignoring hard data. Then you give grassroots groups a chance to actually That's deliberate right. That's publicly. Right. And, That's it, right. and and the policy reviews don't just pertain to the MMPD. I just want to emphasize that point. It sure. can pertain to mm-hmm. any entity involved in criminal justice that intersects with law enforcement, which means it could be metro schools, it could be um, the DA, the public defender. Um, and it doesn't, and, and in many of those cases, it doesn't necessarily, most cases, it probably is not going to be an adversarial policy intervention, policy review. And I, my hope is that once this does get implemented, the leadership can see how that can help them because it, because that really can help them by prov- providing hard data. But just to point out, Barry Freeman, I, I do, I do want to be fair because in some respects, he's kind of caught maybe in the middle, but. It does it, seem it, like it, it. it is what it is. I mean, I've personally talked to him a, a more than a year, a year ago, and try to communicate to him that he's coming into a powder keg situation. But the fair is yeah, fair. To, to be fair, fair, he didn't know the politics when he was first. But, but <laughs> yeah. fair, but fair is fair. Did or did not? He did not. Fair he did is not fair. Know. Fair is fair. He has personal connections, personal friends who are who are close to the to the mayors, in a way that local folks don't have. Okay, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, if that makes any sense. And local people who have experience policing in their communities or working on oversight, they have had to jump over a high bar that's extraordinarily high. The, the bar that the, the bar that to get the amendment one passed, go back and look at it. Since oversight boards have been proposed in Nashville since the, I think the early 70s, maybe the late 60s, but at least the early 70s, the Amendment 1, what is now the Amendment 1 campaign, has had to cross, has, has had to jump over a, a hurdle much higher than any, any, any entity that's in, in Nashville's recent history. But then if you have a, another group that comes in, the policing project, and that's intentionally used, in the case of Megan Berry and, and, and Mary Bright, intentionally used to counter, <laughs> to, to counter even, even when the person, the architect of that project, has indicated, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> like Barry Freeman has said, no, don't don't use a policing project to counter oversight. In fact, Barry Freeman gave a talk a week and a half ago or so that said oversight in front of the accountability worked hand in glove together. Even when he said all that, Nashville's leadership has said, we're going to use it to counter these folks over here and this group over here. <laughs> that you, that's, that's wrong. That's not fair. And, and, and if you roll out a policing project like that, it, you can't do policing that way. Megan, Mary Bradley can think he can do that. Uh, the mayor's public. You, if he if he rolls it out that way, and this amendment one is not successful, the police project will cause damage. Will cause harm to to Nashville's marginalized communities because you can't do policing reform that way. So going back to the death of Daniel Hambrick, in that case with Officer Delkey shooting Daniel Hambrick in the back three times as he was running away. What role would a community oversight board play in that example if we had one today? And 
sort of can you walk us through the process at, at every juncture, what the COB would be doing in terms of investigating? I mean, of course, it's, it's in the criminal system now, but what would the COB be doing also in a world in which DA Funk opted not to bring charges? Well, I can I can say that the formal investigation of the shooting wouldn't begin until after all of the criminal, the criminal proceedings, proceedings ended. Already ended. Um, when it first occurred, the oversight board could immediately begin to note perhaps that um, we're seeing some patterns here. This happened with a traffic stop. Perhaps there are some issues with traffic stop and traffic stop policy that needs to, to be looked at. Um, it happened with the juvenile task force. Maybe we need to look at how the juvenile task force is de- determining who they pull over or what their what their role in the community is or what they're doing. Um, immediately, the oversight board can start looking at those and connecting the dots between other incidents and other patterns and start determining if there are underlying policy issues that need to be addressed. Yeah, the oversight board, and this is just law. This is the other part of the attorney general's opinion that we that we received. If it's a pending criminal investigation, those exact words, the oversight board cannot conduct an investigation that seeks evidence pertaining to that criminal investigation. So it cannot conduct a parallel criminal investigation that seeks discovery or evidence. Um, what the oversight board could do is. Um, it could it could it could hold hearings. Um, it could investigate what we like to refer to as the, the the ecosystem of that particular case. So, for example, what's the policy about taking someone's phone? In the case of Mister Mister Clemens, his phone was was taken for a year. They, the family didn't get it back for a year. What's the policy look like about the family receiving the effects, the clothes, and other material of of the family? Did officer um, chase Hambrick in an appropriate way. There's some questions about whether or not he had his gun out, running with his gun, or with the position of his gun. Um, it can investigate issues such as the video release. What's the proper authority? It could investigate issues such as Facebook posts, social media posts, um, Twitter posts by MMPD. Um, so it can it can investigate the, what we call the ecosystem of of that particular case. Um, that could have a broader impact on policing, and and I think also holding, you know, community meetings too as well, including community meetings in the places where those shootings happen. Yeah, that's that's the most immediate thing that it could do in the aftermath of something like like Mr. Hamburg. Now, death. if if Officer Delkey in an alternative world where DA Funk did not press charges, or if Officer Delkey is cleared of the criminal homicide charge against him. What would the role of a COB be at that point? Would it be possible to make a recommendation? The COB could could investigate that particular shooting, but again, it's, I assume even after the trial is done, there still could be concerns about discovery um, in terms of that particular shooting. But the COB could investigate, given the parameters and limitations or reach that it had and the framework that it had, and it could issue a recommendation about about Officer Delkey, the recommendation that discipline or discipline further um, training, discipline further training, absolutely could do that. It should really be noted here the, the role that the community oversight board can can play in going into the community 
after these things happen and addressing what the community needs, um, seeing what the community needs, addressing the, the feelings of the community, the trauma of the community, um, gathering that information from, from the affected people in the community and funneling that information up so that um, the police department and other criminal justice agencies can know from people who have done research in the community how those type of actions affect the community. And that's very important, and that's not being done now. One of the things we're hearing is, and just I'll just bring some of the research about procedural justice. If communities feel that they don't have a fair voice in the hearing, then communities, the resentment in communities deepens. Um, oftentimes, communities will accept the outcome or fate of a decision, even one that goes against them, if they feel that there's been procedural justice. They feel that that the hearing has been has given them a full weight of a, a full weight of a, vo- a full voice without considerations of their race or their gender that is without racism or or gender or classism um and and oftentimes what we're hearing in these various um interactions with folks is well, that that are have negative interactions with officers is they say like I just want an apology from the officer literally I, we've heard that um we we want some type of sit down some type of restorative or remedial justice um so the oversight board in this community hearings can offer this kind of procedural justice or procedural outcome that I think is important. That's something that John Bunsen pointed out as mm-hmm. well, mm-hmm. Um, to sort of the procedural fairness, the legitimacy yes. of the process of yes. being heard. Yes, and make sure that 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 the people in those communities, which are usually, they're not included in any conversations about public policy. Their voices, their needs, their concerns, they usually are just ignored um, and not seen. So having the community oversight board doing that type of work in the community is very important in helping those communities feel connected to the larger Nashville community and valued and appreciated. Of course, for the community oversight board to pass, it needed to not be a um, strictly racial issue. To what extent is this a racial issue? I mean, of course, both the young men who were shot and killed by officers within the last two years were black. Both of you are black. Mm -hmm. Our police chief, our mayor are white. A lot of the stats of sort of racial disparities within policing. To what extent is the push for for a COB a a racial issue? Well, can I answer that? Well... We like, I like to say that we don't evacuate race from the discussion. It is, a, you know, there are racial disparities and there is a racial equity issue, racial democracy component to, to this particular issue. Uh, that is that African-Americans, based on all the data that we've seen, see policing in a fundamentally different light than, say, for example, their white, their white counterparts, their experiences, what they're taught, their interactions and family. But the Community Oversight Board and Amendment 1 campaign is much broader than race. It's about fundamental democracy and whether or not Nashville is ready for accountability and 21st century democracy. The oversight of a proposal will have a positive impact on uh, gender equity issues because a lot of investigations may entail domestic violence complaints, um, issues related to um, new Americans um, who are non-English speakers, for example. Um, We know fundamentally that that uh, there are poor white communities, poor whites, that have different experiences in policing 
um, than um, middle class and upper income whites. And and that hasn't been been talked about enough. So as a mature democracy, we have to be able to talk about racial equity and experience of African-Americans, but at the same time, talk about how this community oversight board and Amendment 1 campaign deals fundamentally with accountability and with ethical governance and has a reach in multiple communities in Nashville that I and think... And the people of Nashville get that. I mean, the only reason Amendment 1 is on the ballot is because we have gotten support from all over Nashville, from all communities across race, racial lines, across ideological lines, across class mm-hmm. lines. We would not be sitting here talking about it being on the ballot if that was not the case. I I had an interesting case where um, our oversight board, we've gotten support from, uh, of course, black folks, uh, a lot of whites, the American Muslim Advisory Council. Uh, we spoke at a Jewish roundtable for social justice during the petition drive. Uh, we just had folks who spoke at the League of Women Voters. Um I myself even, you know, even visited the Libertarian Party and spoke spoke before the Libertarian Party, which was a first for me. And we spoke to the, with the Democratic Socialist Association, two groups that are essentially polar opposites that see the COB, Community Oversight Board, as a connected tissue for dealing with accountability, accountable governance. So we, <laughs> this Oversight Board and the Amendment 1 campaign, from our perspective— Theta, you may be able to talk about this better than I can. Fr- frankly, it's the most unifying, uh, I think, political issue that we've seen in Nashville. And I think our the opposition, particularly Fraternal Order of Police, is is going to try to polarize Nashvilleans against each other to make it all about these complicated racial distinctions. But but people get it. People get it. They understand that this is this this is about. Um, transparency and accountability in government and with so much that has happened in in our in our uh, local government in the past year with the transit referendum with um the soccer stadium with people who are are really getting fed up with how local government works oversight is just a part of an oh, a broad push for accountability and for transparency in government, in local government right now. Anything that you guys want to add? That's all of my questions. Well, for me, this has been one of the best political fights that I've been involved in. And um, it's uh, been a very humbling experience. And um, vote for Amendment 1 on the ballot. Don't just vote top of the ticket. Vote down the ticket on Amendment 1. You can go to oversightfornashville.com if you want more information about us. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But beyond that, it's been a humbling experience. It's been a great experience. And um, I think uh, I, I, we have this phrase that, uh, that uh, James Lawson taught us that sometimes we can't control the results, but we can win over ourselves. And I think in this fight for an oversight board for 20 months on end, I think what you're finding is – I mean, we're finding young people, we're finding, uh, we have three people in our coalition, our core members, that is, who um, have personally been impacted by police killing. That is, they personally buried family members. And I think seeing their leadership and learning from their leadership, learning from young people, uh, learning from people like Miss Theta, in which the Oversight Board was born, proposals born, 
literally is born on the concrete of Casey Holmes and those activists who came out of that that February 20, 2017 protest, I think for me has been uh, one of the best experiences I've ever had, quite frankly. Um, I would just like to to say that, um, you know, I have been amazed at, at how people in this city have come and they've supported they've supported this effort and they've supported uh, Ms. Sheila and Ms. and uh, Ms. Vicky. Um, the two mothers. The two mothers. And that support is coming from everybody because people recognize when things are right and when things are fair. And this is about fairness and rightness. And I know that um, people are have the right impulse. They're going to do the right thing. Well, thanks to each of you for coming back on the podcast and best of luck on election day. Again, early voting October 17th through November 1st and then election day, of course, Tuesday, November 6th. So best of luck. Thank Thank you. you.